Occupation. Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Mm. Welcome to the 12th encounter of the bullshit artists. I'm Rory Verado here with Jack Grittenden. How you doing, Jack? I'm doing well, Rory. Thank you for asking. Excellent. And, and you? I'm doing pretty well. We've been on break here from the podcast for probably close to two months at this point. And so I want to catch people up, listeners up on what's been going on. Originally, we had intended to take something like a four to six week little sabbatical as Jack made his annual sojourn to New Mexico. Um, and maybe he can tell you a little bit about everything that went down out there. Uh, in the, at the same time, I was moving across the country from Sedona to New York City and uh, encountered a few challenges along the way, including my flight being diverted by Hurricane Ira, I think. And, uh, and so it's just been a little hectic getting settled, but I'm settled now and feeling good. Glad to be back in the city. And so we're starting the podcast back up. Uh, anything you want to add, Jack, that I may have well, lost I, over? I don't, I respect our listeners. So I will tell <laughs> them that I'll tell them the truth. It took Rory and me uh, just about eight weeks to try to figure out the time change. <laughs> so we have figured it out now. Rory's starting a little uh, later. And I'm starting a little earlier um, because Clouseau <laughs> has a particular schedule that must be adhered to. And we follow orders. Yes, he's the boss. He's very so, demanding. Yeah. yeah. General Clouseau. Yes. So, yes, we're, we're happy to be back, listeners. Thank you for tolerating our absence. Maybe you didn't care. Maybe you're glad we were off. <laughs> exactly. Either way, I'm sure they're hopefully they're prepared for more bullshit because that's what they're about to get. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, what was I going to mention? So you had asked me prior to the start of the pod, you know, uh, how how New York was. And I guess I can just speak a little bit about that because I've had this. Wait, you, how long oh, were yeah. you how long were you in Sedona? What was your what was your time frame? A year. I was there for a whole year. I moved there in like late August of 2020 and moved back here to New York City September 1st, 2021. So full okay, year. So full year. Out of the city and into, you know, for people that might not know, Sedona is a is a pretty small town, relatively um, isolated or inaccessible in northern Arizona, about two hours, hundred miles outside of Phoenix. And it's probably about 10,000 people there that are permanent residents, but it gets a lot of tourists. Yeah. I, I have a, a, an anecdote that will, if listeners aren't familiar with Sedona, have never been, or maybe have never even heard of it. Uh, early on, when my family had moved to Arizona, we had uh, friends come over from the UK to visit and they wanted to see the Grand Canyon. They were desperate to see the Grand Canyon because it everybody around the world 
has heard of the Grand Canyon, and most people know that it's in the state of Arizona. Well, most people who live outside the United States know it's in the state of Arizona. Most <laughs> Americans have no clue where it is. They think it's in Paris. <laughs> no, didn't the uh, London Bridge come from the UK to Havasu? Yeah, uh, Lake yeah. Havasu. So yeah, maybe that's exactly. no, that's giving them too much credit. <laughs> so, uh, friends, the, the friends come from the UK. They're desperate to see uh, the Grand Canyon. They bring their kids along. They have three three children as my wife and I have. Uh, and so we're driving up to the Grand Canyon and we stop in Sedona and they're just absolutely floored because it was completely unexpected. It is a spectacularly beautiful place. Mm. Uh, if you follow Rory on Instagram, you've seen many, many photographs of the red rocks, but it is, it's, uh, it, it's stunning. And because it's so unexpected for people, it sometimes uh, even surpasses the Grand Canyon because it's mm -hmm. just, uh, it's a magnificent. If you've never been, you should plan a trip. Uh, you can buy crystals, you can have your palm <laughs> read. Uh, it's a vortex if you want to do some out of body traveling. <laughs> what an astral projection. <laughs> all of it, you can do it all. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, I mean, I'm glad that you brought that up uh, because I think... I mean, while I was living there, even though I was like maybe an hour or less from the Grand Canyon, I never went uh, to see the Grand Canyon. I've been there at least twice before, but Sedona and the area around Sedona is just so surpassingly majestic and really unlike anywhere else, as far as I know, on, on the entire planet. Um, and so, yeah, I would I would echo Jack's uh exhortation to folks if you ever get a chance to visit sedona do so um i hiked there a lot and as he mentioned posted a lot of pictures of my hikes and it's just every photo is a winner you know you don't have to really have any skill <laughs> to capture the beauty of that place but i mean oh didn't you what was that you told me one time there's like a cliche contrasting the grand canyon with sedona it's like uh, god made the Grand Canyon, but he lives in Sedona or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And I think that kind of, that kind of captures the essence of it too. But it was, it was definitely an incredible place to, to sort of wait out the pandemic and also just center myself and refresh myself. You know, I, I don't, I'm not big on the vortices, uh, but I do certainly believe in like natural majesty and awe and wonder, you know, and Emer Emersonian transcendentalism and all that kind of stuff. And I certainly found a lot of that there. Uh, but yeah, the contrast and this, that, that's something else. So like in comp, you know, in contrast to New York city, the pace of life in Sedona is just unimaginably slow. They really, you know, I was pondering over this, especially on my flight and afterwards and just the, the sort of phenomenology of, of like location, you know? So the, for example, in Sedona, like I said, time passes so slowly, you're kind of isolated. There's not a lot of people uh, other than the tourists who are almost like automatons and can be generally avoided or ignored by locals. Um, but then here in the city, everything is so much faster and your perception of things being faster is, you know, obviously parallel with that. So I don't know, I'm just kind of spitballing here, but like my, it's almost like it got me thinking about the relativity of time and the way in which time truly slows down. And maybe you, maybe you experience this when you go to 
Santa Fe area on your trips or something similar. It's like, it's not just that you're on vacation or whatever. It's that you're, the quality of your experience really can change depending on where you are. I don't know if any of that makes sense to you. I think it does. I, I encourage old people to steer clear of New York. Yeah. Because uh, you don't want time speeding up. <laughs> when no. you're old, time is all you've got. Let's face it. So you want that to slow down. So if you can go to a place like Sedona where the pace is slower and time can stand still for you, whether you're in a vortex or not, that, that's a good idea. One thing I have noticed about aging, and I'm going to attribute it to age, but it may not simply be that, because I'm, uh, in addition to being old, I'm also a long, long time meditator. But I have noticed that, I'll use a uh, prosaic example. I wake up in the morning and I look at the clock, it's say it's 6.30. I roll around, you know, think oh, maybe I'll go back to sleep. Can I go back to sleep? You know, you're just, just spending a little time ruminating, rolling around, thinking about things. So 10 minutes pass and you're ready to get up. And I look at the clock and it's been 45 minutes. <laughs> right. And I said, okay, one of two things has happened. My sense of time has changed dramatically, or I just fell into a state of pure consciousness where I knew I wasn't asleep, but I also, but something happened to time because now <laughs> it's later. Oh, uh, so this and, is really when you're on the cusp of waking up that this happens, like you're making that transition. No, I'll be awake. To, okay. So you're fully, no, 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 I'll fully be awake. I'm, I yeah. think I'm fully awake, but it happens in meditation all the time where, mm. uh, there is a state uh, that I, I experience quite frequently of pure awareness where you only know that you were in it because you're no longer in it. Mm. Because it's a state of pure awareness, there is no thinking, there, there are no thoughts. So you can't have the thought that, wow, I'm not thinking anything. Right. Which is right, because then that's a thought. So you, you come out of it and you, and you know that you, ha you have not been sleeping, you've been aware and you look at the clock and it's been 40 minutes. Yeah. So, but now I'm wondering if, am I bringing that into my waking state <laughs> or because I'm old? Yeah, are you just senile? <laughs> well, maybe a trick of old age. In yeah. other words, it might be that, that your change of awareness is something that is attached to your aging. Right? So it's mm. almost as if it's a trick of aging. That you're fine. That that uh, this idea of pure awareness is available more readily. I don't know whether that's true, or maybe it's just having meditated for fifty years. I yeah, it could be a little bit of both. I mean, I think both of us are, you know, we have relatively unique perspectives, and certainly your med, you know, long time meditation practice. It it's reasonable to suspect that that would bear on your, you know, perception of time in the in the way you just described. But I would probably you know argue or suggest that there there must be a generalized process here that accompanies or, or can accompany the aging process itself where you know because we've i've talked about this a little bit i think with you before in fact i remember emailing you about it at like two in the morning 10 years ago or something <laughs> about uh the 
the perception of time over the lifespan in a very basic sense, which is that when you're five years old, one year is a fifth of your life. When you're 25 years old, it's one twenty-fifth of your life, you know, and so on and oh. so on. Oh. And so the units, relatively speaking, become smaller and smaller. And so if you, you know, if you assume at some kind of basic level that your perception follows that trend, perception of time follows that trend, then of course, you know, it feels almost like things are accelerating or passing, I don't know, more sneakily. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, but, but then the, then that raises the other interesting thing, which I think is an implication of what you were saying, which is like, can you, can you consciously or with some intention, I don't know. I don't know if I want to say control that perception, but like alter it or kind of surf the wave a little differently as a result of, you know, meditation and things like that. I, when you were talking, I was thinking, I haven't had that experience from meditation because I don't meditate at least not like you do. I, I would, I, I think that I often get into a, a meditative state when I exercise, but it's not quite the same or maybe it is, but it's just a different form than like seated silent meditation or something like that. But I was thinking actually of like dreaming uh, and just that, that process of awakening in general in the mornings, uh, especially I have the experience of what you were just describing where I will, I wake up and like, I realize that I was in something like the state you were just describing where it's, it's, it's really difficult to put into words, but some kind of altered consciousness was transpiring and I don't realize it until I wake up. So that really sure. resonated with me when you were saying that. And it's not just like standard sort of unconsciousness that I'm talking about here. It's a very particular thing that happens to me when I'm like early in the morning, typically. Yeah, there is a, the hypnagogic state, that strange state between sleeping and waking. Right. Uh, yeah, it's a mystery. I mean, it's it's all a mystery. Time, time. I don't understand time. I I have no interest in time. I don't know what it is. It seems like a trap to me. Uh, thinking in, in linear terms, time moving along, that doesn't make any sense to me. Infinite, the idea of, of infinite, that doesn't make any sense. Nothing, none of it makes any sense. We need to. <laughs> Stop conceptualizing these things. Yeah, it's all bullshit, right? I mean, <laughs> but like, it's still nevertheless, it's very interesting to me, uh, like the construction of time and especially the standardization of time. Like how, you know, how did it come to be or how did we allow it to come to be as a species that time has become so regimented and standardized? And of course, you mentioned like us struggling with the time difference, which was mostly a joke, but partially true. And, uh, and I was thinking like, you know, fuck in like two weeks or whatever, we're going to have to deal with the time, the daylight savings time switch, uh, which Arizona is unaffected by right. and the only state, I think maybe other than like Alaska or Hawaii that doesn't change their clocks as a result of daylight savings time. Well, I consider that to be one of the few things that Arizona has gotten right. <laughs> I agree. I agree. It's like maybe the only thing. <laughs> yeah, it could be. I hadn't thought about that. It could be the only thing. Uh, but time is, people dwell on it. It was, wasn't it Proust's book, Le Temps Perdu? 
uh, in search of lost time in search of lost time. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. It, uh, but of course I don't live, I have never been a nostalgic person. I never look back and think, Oh, I wish I had done X or look back with regret. Uh, if anything, <laughs> I'm going to look to the future, but the future, what's good about, I mean, the thing about the looking past is that you just make up crap. It's either much worse or much better. It's, it's never <laughs> more boring, right? It's, it, it's worse or better than you really remember it. Yeah, it's embellished, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The future, on the other hand, you know, you make it up whatever you want. You know, you, are you, you anxious? Are you anxiety ridden because you fear what's coming? Are you eager for what's coming? I don't know. Just relax. Get into yes. the now. Get into the moment. Yeah. Lose yourself. Self is bullshit. Self is constructed <laughs> of time, time and space. Get rid of them both. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's honestly, that's part of what inspired me to start down this path, like contrasting the experience of time between Sedona and New York is, is this, the way in which location and then time as well can be thought of as like a constituent part of selfhood, or at least certain, you know, forms or constructions of, of the self. Like, you know, you and others have written about sort of complex or even compound forms of selfhood between you know the individual and the social and things like this but expanding outward to include things like geography and and all kinds of stuff like that i think could be you know intriguing even as we acknowledge that it's ultimately all whatever we make of it yeah. as the as the creator of these things as our, you know as our consciousness is the creator of these things i i have had negative reactions to New York mm -hmm. and not just because I'm a, I'm from Boston and a Red Sox fan, uh, but because it seems, it seems constricting to me. It seems like it's the physical representation of a maze mm -hmm. and there these, these boundaries blockages called buildings I remember one day coming out of a hotel in New York and I couldn't tell what kind of day it was until I looked straight up so I right. could see the sky. And I said, I'm, I never want to live in a place where I have to look straight up to see the sky. I said, there's something wrong here. Yeah. But, no, I get that. This place, it's, it's an abomination. I will sometimes say like it, it should not exist it's it's horrific in so many ways it's like a sewer you know and on and on and on and i think any anybody who's lived here for any length of time or or at least is honest about their experience here has to admit and recognize that it's it's a mixed bag at best but i would say also having lived here now you know going on 5 years with a short break at in sedona is like the, it's also it has its own special benefits too and so like what you were characterizing as a maze maze-like quality i completely agree and yet living here you'll have these certain experiences where things just come together the pieces of the puzzle coalesce in this in it in this almost unimaginable complexity and haphazardness and you're like holy shit like i just that experienced all of these things coming together in this particular location, in this place. 
What what kinds of things are you talking about or thinking about? So I can think of two off the top of my head, one mundane and one sort of really fantastical, at least to me. Uh, mundane one is just the series of events that may occur as one is attempting to uh, travel from place point A to point B. So getting out of my building, for example, I live on the 22nd floor of a, of a 29 story tall building. We have three elevators. All three of them have been broken <laughs> for the past couple of weeks. Now they get, yeah, exactly. They get one of them working. They've only been all three broken for maybe two or three days total during the past month. Okay. So sporadically all three will be down, but we've been at one pretty much the rest of the time. Okay. So this is nightmarish for a number of reasons, especially for the elderly and disabled people of which there are many in this building, because this building was originally public housing constructed in the 1970s and was phased out and sold out to corporate buyers in the early 2000s, controversially so. And now gentrifiers like me have poured in, you know, and started to displace these people. Anyway, um, it's just escaping this building, my point is like a task in itself that can involve or require a significant amount of planning, but also then the flip side of that is like luck. So me strolling out my, my front door, basically in my apartment and the, the location of the elevator at that point in time is going to be the first sort of juncture on the decision tree that I have to make. Do I wait for the elevator? Do I take the stairs 22 flights down? Okay. And then from there, it's just an endless, not endless, but a, a lengthy series of similar choices and similar sort of billiard balls bouncing off each other as I'm strolling down the block and the children are passing and the crossing guard is either stopping or allowing them. And do I catch the subway? Do I make it in time? Does my card swipe? Do I not have enough fare on my card? This happened to me the other day. I'm running late to give my students their midterm and the train is pulling into the station. I'm swiping my card, insufficient fare. Okay, well, that only happens every 30 days because I buy monthly passes, but I fucked up. I forgot, you know, I dropped that ball I was juggling <laughs> to keep myself alive and, and uh, you know, capable in New York City. And so, so I missed jumped the turnstile. No, I thought about it. I did. That's the fir first and only time I've ever legitimately thought about jumping the turnstile, not because I care about paying the, paying the fare, but because I don't want to deal with the hassle. Um, but I didn't. And I, I turned back and, you know, recharged my card. Unfortunately, there was another train coming, but who knows, it could have been delayed. And then my students would not have been able to take their midterm. And so like this whole concept, I've been thinking about this a lot of like the New York minute the New York minute, like that whole cliche, when you really experience that firsthand repeatedly and think about it, it's just this fascinating phenomenon. So those, so those are the sort of the mundane things, making, catching your train and getting, so I ended up, I made it and I got, was able to give my students their exam. I got to class five minutes early, you know, everything's right on time or just barely in the nick of time here. And, but it could have gone the other way and I would have felt horrible, you know, about, yeah. uh, about getting there late to give my students their midterm exam, which of course they were, you know, all nervous about and everything, whatever. So that's a, that's a mundane example. And those are the types of things that happen on a daily basis here in a whole sort of 
uh, kaleidoscopic fashion. But then a, a more kind of interesting or like really memorable one for me was when I was doing an interview when, uh, for Extinction Rebellion television interview. And I was in the RT studios here in Midtown and I was in the green room. This was when I was doing Chris Hedges's show and I was in the green room and also in the green room at the same time was Richard Wolf, who's a fairly yeah. well-known Marxian economist and uh, Amitav Ghosh, who's an Indian novelist. And I'm not sure if I pronounced his name correctly. I, I've only really read it, not said it, but I think that's how you say it. And he has a, that's right. And so these two guys and Chris Hedges and me and one of my friends from Extinction Rebellion, five of us in a room hanging out for, you know, half an hour or whatever before we went in just talking. And I was like, how in the fuck <laughs> did I end up here with these guys right now? Uh, you know, having come from where I've come from at this moment in time and all of them on their own trajectories as well. It so the things like that, just really sort of almost sublime uh, combinations, you know, of, of atoms bouncing off of yeah. each other. You know, I, I, I don't deny that there are people who feed off the energy of New York and uh, therefore are attracted to that sort of environment. Uh, and clearly it attracts lots of people, lots of really interesting people, people of all sorts. And that's the benefit of the place. Uh, and I'm sure there are other benefits that I don't appreciate. You know, there are loads of museums and good restaurants and perhaps bookstores. I don't know if there are any bookstores available anywhere in the country anymore. Other than <laughs> There's one big one here, the Strand. Strand, uh, that's still going? Yeah, it's still going. In fact, uh, an acquaintance of mine, professor at Columbia, is doing a book uh, launch there uh, in the coming weeks. So I might I might go check that out. You might actually be interested in the book. It's called, I think, Rescuing Socrates. It, he was the director of the core curriculum here at Columbia College for about 10 years. And he's, I forget from which country he hails, but he's Latin American uh, immigrant. And he writes about how the classics should not just be discarded as old white men or whatever, you know, they can be read with a critical eye, but they, things that they say are in some sense timeless and have great bearing on contemporary experiences, including, you know, immigrant experiences. So sure. anyway, yeah. that's just an aside. Uh, I can, yes. Well, another interesting person, of course, he's at Columbia, so maybe that's not surprising. <laughs> yeah. Or, Roosevelt Montas is his name. If you are I'll uh, look intrigued. For Rescuing Socrates. I'll, I'll I think check that's that what's going yeah. uh, I have in the back of my mind, as you know, a book on Plato's Republic. <laughs> um. I don't know what's going to become of it um, because a part of, I imagine doing some of it, I imagine doing some of it with great enthusiasm. I imagine doing other parts with dread. So the question is, can, writing, I, cut out, right? can I cut out the dreadful yeah. and uh, hold on to the enthusiasm, uh, which is the way I would hold on to enthusiasm. 
But I mention it because what I'm planning on doing is introducing uh, both the Tao Te Ching and uh, at least one of the Upanishads. Mm. Because I think the wisdom expressed by Plato via Socrates, via Socrates in uh, the Republic is reflective of the wisdom found in certain traditions in the East, such as the Tao Te Ching, even the uh, Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, mm. um, certainly the Upanishads, and even in the, uh, if you can find them, the sayings of Buddha, which are mostly in the what's called the Pali Canon. Uh, so yeah, so you'd like to have that cross-pollination Right, something that was called by Carl Jaspers called the axial age. Axial age, right? Yes. Um, so yeah, so I'm in sympathy with anybody who finds in Socrates slash Plato that which goes beyond the dead white male canon, which, as you know, some of my colleagues and some of your professors taught in the most conventional and uh, often drab way. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I'd like somebody who's rescuing Socrates. I'd like to think I'm participating in that project. So I will definitely look look for his book. Yeah. I mean, I think you are. You're you're doing it from a different angle with what you just described. Um, but I think it's all of a piece. And I think. Yeah. Well, you can't. So Columbia and the University of Chicago were known for the Great Books Program. Right. So right. if you were an undergraduate at Columbia College, you were you you had a curriculum based upon the great books. And they still do have that. I mean, it's they, changed, you know. Yeah, it's changed. Right. And yeah. same with the University of Chicago. The only only two places that continue with that tradition in a rock solid, meaning rigid way, uh, is Santa Fe is the college, St. John's College in Santa Fe and St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. Right. The but there, at least they're they are aware of the need to expand it. Right. So one of the things they do at Santa Fe, uh, St. John's in Santa Fe, is that they have an entire master's program in Eastern philosophy. Right. I was, yeah. In fact, I was going to say, why aren't you teaching or, or getting involved in that since you go to Santa Fe and they do that, you know, or yeah, you're, you're I, retired, I know. <laughs> well, I had looked into doing a seminar there, not, not teaching the seminar, but taking a seminar on Plato. They had a Plato one, one summer. Mm. I think it was... Uh, met twice a week, maybe for six weeks, something like that. I can't remember how long it was. Um, but as you know, I have a very particular, not to say peculiar reading of, of Plato. So, I, you know, I'm going to get into arguments with people about that. I don't know. So I, I sort of backed off that. But coincidentally, yeah. my wife and I were on a hike. Uh, if you, those of you who don't know Santa Fe, Santa Fe sits at the foothills of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. Um, which is the beginning of the Rockies. And uh, we were on a hike and somehow we got in, we ran into a group of people also hiking. And I think they had stopped for maybe a water break and we had stopped and we sort of started chatting. And I was talking to the, the leader of the group. The group was a bunch of summer school students from St. John's College in Santa Fe. And he was a, a graduate of St. John's. I can't remember whether he was in the master's program or had just come back to, to work in the summer. But 
we began walking back down after the hike, uh, walking down together. And I started asking ask him about that. St. John's, both in Annapolis and Santa Fe, is set up not just on the great books tradition, but it's set up on the seminar tradition. There is no class bigger than 19. Every class is a seminar. Everyone who teaches a seminar has the same, it teaches at the same level. I, I believe they're called tutors. Yeah, tutors. I know a bunch of Johnnies. You know a bunch of Johnnies. Okay, yeah, so they, yeah. They're all um, they're all supposed to be supposed to be uh, equal across the board. So there's no separate ranking: full professor, associate professor, none of that. Right. And I asked him about it, and he said the problem. I asked the the, the student, the graduate, the, the graduate of St. John's, about his experience, and he said. It's all the things that you would like it to be, small seminars um, with students sitting around tables talking about great works, but it's formulaic in that the tutor will ask a question and then sort of back off. Right. But the problem that he said from his perspective was that there was a there was an undercurrent of proper interpretations of texts mm-hmm. that wasn't announced and certainly therefore wasn't pronounced but it was evident yep and you i've heard that as a complaint that they're it's full of straussians and people <laughs> with very particular readings yeah that's right? my impression as well particularly straussians yeah. So even if I applaud their expansion of the great books to include texts from the East or texts by uh, voices uh, often marginalized, mm. if you're interpreting those in certain ways, right, and only in certain ways, then it's a problem. Then that's a yes. problem. But yeah, sorry, I cut you off about the about I, I don't even remember what I was saying. We were talking about great books, Columbia College. Your oh, professor, I, I he, he's not your professor; he's just a friend. Just yeah, he. I know him through uh, the extra sort of extracurricular program that I helped to coordinate for a couple of years right. here at Columbia called Freedom Based. and Citizenship. Right for for uh, high school, exactly high school high school seniors and juniors, juniors and seniors. Uh, high school like. Yeah, high school juniors going into their senior year, okay. they would be typically from like Title I, meaning like underfunded, you know, public schools, and mostly students of color, first generation immigrants, etc. And this whole program was uh, sort of designed and uh, implemented for the purpose of, you know, reaching these kinds of students, which are the exact kinds of students, you know, that Roosevelt is arguing that these texts can resonate with, you know, if they're uh, presented in the in the right way or whatever, which would be, you know, not like how you were just describing the the John, the tutors at St. John's or some of them, at least would do some of them. Yeah, I I don't want. Yeah. Yeah. But like I've heard that as well. And like one of the things that always has bothered me, like I visited St. John's in Annapolis. It was one of the few colleges I visited when I was graduating high school, like to try and figure out where I was going to go. And I visited and I was like, this is because I think they had sent me a, you know, whatever, a packet in the mail. 
And it just had this list of all these philosophers and things. And they were like, these are the books you're going to read. I was like, fuck yeah, sign me up. And uh, so I somehow convinced people to take me down there and explore a little bit. And it was cool. Yeah. And I got, you know, I went to their bookstore and I got a copy of Nietzsche's Advantage and Disadvantage of History for Life, which I still have, which I used to help write my thesis for you. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say your, your honors thesis. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's threads here. But, um, but the thing that I didn't realize this at the time necessarily, but when you were just talking, it's like there, there seems to be a de-emphasization of pedagogy at St. John's or at the more charitably, if we want to try to be, they have a very particular notion of pedagogy that I think is bogus because it lends itself to exactly what you were just describing. Like they, in trying to center the initiative and the conversation of the students and like remove the tutor from like the position of authority, I, I'm, I'm on board with all that, but it, I, I think, I feel like it creates a vacuum or something that nevertheless ha can have certain presuppositions that structure it in a problematic way, like you were just describing. And I would rather see, which is what I try to do, and which I think is also an approach that you tend to take, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but it's like, you don't, try and hide yourself or pretend that you don't have opinions and views, but you try to create an environment in which you, the, the existence of your own views, first of all, are not overbearing, but are also not taken to be definitive or, you know, or somehow squelching other even conflicting views. Right. So it's like everybody yeah. bring it yeah. all out. You know, we're all on board here and we're going to be respectful and whatever. And that's really all that, we have to do. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Your, your reading of, uh, first, I applaud your, your pedagogical approach. Thank Mine you. is not as pure as yours might be. Mm. Uh, and let, so let me put it in context. I think there are four kinds of teachers, particularly in seminars. There is the, the professor who simply lectures and, and does that, I think, out of disrespect for the students on the assumption that the professor saying, I know how to read texts. I'm going to show you how to read this text. And therefore, I'm going to lecture about what's in it and what you ought to pull from it. I'll emphasize what's important. You'll take notes on that. You, you've had professors like that. Yes. The second kind might even be worse. And that's the professor comes in and says, let's have a discussion. I want a discussion here on this text. Open discussion. All right, Rory, mm -hmm. we'll start with you. Do you have questions about the text? What, what struck you when you read this? You know, go around and have a conversation going on. And then toward the end of the, of the seminar, professor says, not this crudely, but it's, this is the intention. Well, now that we've had that fun, let me tell you what the text is really about. Let right. me give you the right answers. Or worse, we'll ask a question to which this professor has an answer and wants you to get to that answer mm -hmm. and will guide you to his or her interpretation. 
Yes, but, I hate that. It's the faux Socratic approach yeah, and yeah, the, the leaving of breadcrumbs, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 weak and it's sad. So I'd rather yeah, have the pathetic. lectures just saying, let's skip the bullshit in the middle <laughs> because I don't respect you. But, you know, I'm not even going to feign that I want to hear what you have to say. I, right. But let's, yeah, so I'll, you'll talk and I'll pretty much ignore it and then I'll give you the right answer. Yep. Okay, the third kind is... I think my kind, not quite yours, which is the fourth kind. Mm. My kind is, <laughs> which is why it's my kind, because this is what I do. Uh, by the time I'm teaching a text, unless it's a course that, that I have inherited and inherited the course at such a late date that I can't fiddle with the, the text assigned. Mm. Um, if it's a course that I have any part in planning, it's going to be, I'm going to assign texts that I have. I'm going to go back on what I just said in a minute, but it's pretty much going to be texts that I have thought about and want students to share in either because it's really, really good or really, really bad. <laughs> and they're good things to learn from bad texts. Sure. So my attitude is I am more interested in what the students have to say about the text than I am in what I have to say, because I know what I think about it already, mm -hmm. but I'm really eager to hear what you all have to say. So what I will do in there is, is try to reach clarity on what students are saying. What do you mean by that? Why do you, how did you get to that point? That sort of thing. And it's completely genuine. Right. Now the other, the other ones, the reason I'm going back on that, I think now comes closer to your position which is sometimes, and I like to think I did this often, but now again, time has played tricks on my mind. <laughs> yeah, you're embellishing uh, your own <laughs> teaching. Right. Looking back, uh, um, I will assign a text that I haven't read because I want to read it. And I want to read it with a group of people who also haven't read it by yeah. large. Sometimes they have, they've, they've read it before I've read it. Then I don't know what I think about it. And that's a real, that's a genuine Socratic experience because we're all, that, that's not right. <laughs> it's it, closer though it's closer right yeah. it's closer i uh yeah we'd have to get into what i think a true socratic experience <laughs> is and maybe we can but yeah, i think yeah. that's closer to to you to, to yours is more much more ennobling than mine <laughs> i don't know about that i think i think it's very similar to yours actually um and yeah yeah, yeah just as an aside i would sure. say I appreciate what you said about, about your position and I think my position of not hiding behind our viewpoints. Right. We're not, we're not, hot, not hiding behind, hiding them, not, not suppressing them, but pushing them down. But I don't usually express them unless I become <laughs> enraged <laughs> by something that somebody says yeah. or or uh i become enamored of something that somebody says yeah that i can't i have to say oh you know i thought about that in that way yeah i think that's right and then I, i'll share exactly what i was thinking or yes. somebody students that you and i have known and, and somebody <laughs> together will say something so outrageously stupid you just can't let it pass i can't let it pass and i don't no. think they're i don't think they're pretending I think they actually have come to this insight. There might be a little bit of wanting to provoke, but by yeah. and large, they think it. And I say, oh, no, 
And then, <laughs> then I'll have then I'll have to say something. Yes, I'm laughing especially hard because I can remember some distinct moments where you were sort of roused from your slumber, so to speak. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and it's like you know, tree beard coming to life or something from uh, Lord of the Rings, just shouting. <laughs> you know, not that you shouted, but just that uh, the forcefulness with which you were kind of pushing yeah. back or endorsing a particularly particularly you know important or intriguing statement by someone but i yeah i do think that that's a difference between us at least based on the classes that i took with you back in the day is you're you were a little more your your dynamic was was focused a little more on just and i say just but facilitating the students drawing out from them rather than putting your own thoughts into the conversation as much because my assumption was always that you didn't want to steer it or take control of it or feel like students had to kowtow to you or something like that because you have these credentials and you're well-read and you're older and all this kind of stuff you know you're the authority whereas what 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 is the what is the point right of the seminar it can't be really for my glorification that right. let me let me show you how smart I am, how well read I am. It can't that what's the point of that? Yeah. Right? Nothing. If, you, if you if you think that, go publish what you think and, and have your peers tear it apart. If right. You think it's so glorious. Uh, yeah, it's for the benefit of the students and particularly at the graduate level. It's for students to not just find, but also begin to refine their voices. Hmm. That to me was so important. So, in, as you know, Every seminar, the first hour was spent on going over students' work, right? Uh, which we called workshopping papers. But that was to, to hear the voice and help them refine the voice. And the same, it's the same thing speaking in class. I mean, that's, I just think that's so important. Now, a lot of students don't give a shit about having a voice or wanting a voice. In fact, they, want, they just want to remain mute. Right. They want to be hidden as much as possible. Yeah. They'd, they'd much rather have the right answer. And then they can simply be a megaphone. Right. Right. For something that they haven't thought about, it isn't theirs. They don't own it. They have no ownership. They just uh, they just adopt it and say, "I'm going to broadcast it." Right. As if I'm par- I'm a parrot. But yeah, <laughs> I remember talking to you about the courses you taught uh, at the Great Hearts Academy. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I I don't know if you ever heard from any students after you left, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't say that you you would because it's really rare if you did, but you you treated them with such respect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That I don't know that anywhere else, particularly when you were there and you would share what other people, what other teachers were doing in the, in the curriculum. I don't know how much of that, they, how much of that they got in other classes, but it must've been initially so startling to them <laughs> to be treated like thinking human beings, human yes. beings with feelings and ideas that they could hold and express and develop and change. Uh, yeah. I, I, I always thought that was just uh, completely admirable the way you did that. And in the face of people who are trying to, to, if not arrest, then at least slow down what you were doing. Right. Well, I really appreciate that. And, and that was a big part of it. I mean, and for so many reasons, like I, I do think it was very liberating for the students who, and part of why I felt like I could do it so easily was because I saw and was able to contrast with my own life experience going through public school in rural Western Pennsylvania, 
I was like, these kids, like their lives are not their own. <laughs> like they're so controlled and so, yeah. you know, their parents are just hammering them. They're getting hammered from every side, you know, extracurriculars. You have to be the best. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have no free time. You have no, nobody cares about what you want at all, et cetera, et cetera. So if, if I could create this space for them in class, then it was almost like, I didn't really think of this at the time, but it was almost sort of a way of tricking them into participating even more than they otherwise would have because they had this realm of freedom that was rooted on the material, but was sort of seductive, you know, in a way that it wouldn't have been if I had been, you know, extremely forceful or whatever, like yeah. many of the other teachers, including certain advisors I had, one of whom was a Johnny Straussian asshole that we used to call Dr. Dickhead. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he, his first of a teaching evaluation after an observation of me was basically like, you're horrible and, you know, stop doing everything that you do. And uh, I was just like, yeah, it's not going to happen, dude. Uh, but I, I think um, you're leaving out the best part of the story, <laughs> which is what I don't remember <laughs> when Dr. Dickhead, who was your supervisor. Yeah. Comes into class with, with either the head of the school or the oh. head of the school board. Yeah, the yeah. The, he was a high high ranking executive. I don't remember yeah. what position comes in to observe. Yeah. And what happened? He he liked it. Right. The the executive. Yeah, well, said, this is what education's about <laughs> yeah this is great it sort of overruled him yeah i actually i honestly forgot about that so i'm glad you mentioned that i had forgotten that that went down because i was vindicated and the dude finally fucking left me alone yeah you know now, of because course, he, he was, couldn't he couldn't modify his own way of teaching no but he at least had the sense to leave you alone because he knew that if he didn't <laughs> you had a higher up to go to exactly for some, for some toe stepping Yes. Yes. I yeah, had to good for you. totally forgotten about that. But yeah, I was pleased because I knew also I was like, I, I never doubted my approach at the time. It's not like he, when I got that bad review, it sent me into a spiral of despair about what I was doing. My only concern was getting this guy off my back. And as if, it, if this is going to cause problems for me in regards to my employment and things like this, you know, which of course, knowing a little bit more about public education now, and especially in the state of Arizona, where there was already a teacher shortage, when I started teaching there, there yeah. was no way in hell yeah, they were going to fire me, now. you know? Yeah, exactly. So you have to murder someone uh, to get fired. And even then it's an open question, but um, yeah, that was, that was a very uh, interesting experience to be able to, to do that and to, to see firsthand that it was indeed the case that, you know, people become what they're expected to be. And if you can set parameters and especially using your authority, laughable to me, but your authority as a teacher or whomever you might be as a, like a fulcrum to sneak in something different, or maybe a Trojan horse is a better image to sneak in something different, then, you know, it can really work. Like it, yeah. it actually it, it can create something totally different from and actually worth worthwhile for everyone involved. Those are my dogs communicating with, with Clouseau. 
We know from, from cosmic entanglement that space-time is not an issue when you're communicating. No, they're on the animal phone. Clouseau was just clawing <laughs> at the door a moment ago. So maybe oh, there you are. So they're, yeah. they're in sympathy. Uh, yeah, I don't know how you... Well, maybe you can answer this. How uh, formative were those years at Great Hearts for you? And would you would you have if you had gone from ASU directly to Columbia mm. and done the same thing that you're doing, teaching at Fordham? Do you think you would have taught the same way? And it was was that an interlude that had. Mm. A, a, a tremendous effect on how you you teach or was it an interlude that simply fell in line with things that you are already thinking about and doing yeah it's putting it into practice how much difference did it make to you putting your theories about pedagogy into practice uh in a high school in arizona i think it made a big difference i think it i, I mean it's a multifaceted question i mean first of all the short answer. Well, we've is got I, time. Yeah, exactly. The short one of the short answers is that I wouldn't have been able to go straight from undergrad to Columbia or anywhere else other than the bottom of a bottle, probably. And uh, you know, so because I was because of your emotional state. Yeah, I was just a mess, you know. And it took me a long time to get. But my e- shit even to after the graduate degree. Well, after my master's, that when I came yeah. back for my master's is when I felt like okay, like I've kind of sorted my life out and I can actually study the way that I would like to, you know, so I came back and got the master's. And then it was after that, or as I was finishing that really, that I went in to teach at Scottsdale prep. But uh, so that's one of the short answers. So that, that interlude and that process of dealing with myself internally uh, was crucial and essential. Now, sort of intellectually or like cognitively uh, at least in terms of like what I knew or what I was capable of doing reading and writing and all that stuff that I don't think that, you know, meaningfully changed in that gap period. It was more about just, like I said, dealing with myself, but the masters and then definitely taking what I had learned in the masters or studied more deeply in the masters and become aware of studying political theory with you and others um, informed my approach in, in significant ways when I started teaching. But I would say that that was not the only thing. And it was really, it, it was, I mean, you've used this line, which I have plagiarized and told millions of people that all teaching is autobiographical. And so it's not just about what you know, it's about who you are. And so it was a combination of those things for me when I was teaching and as I continue to teach now. Um, but more pointedly, what you what you were asking about, like the sort of insight gained from the experience of teaching for two years at the middle and high school level, one at the middle school level, mercifully, hardest thing I've ever done was teach sixth graders. Uh, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've but, taught seventh graders, so yeah, not quite was, as maybe as brutal, 
<laughs> less brutal more brutal i don't know i don't know either because there are so many i feel like in that brief window between say sixth and eighth grade middle school basically it's like there's so much going on at different levels different stages that i mean i may have mentioned to you before i don't even think middle school should exist they should just like go camping for a couple of years and learn life skills and like frolic you know in the wilderness because they're useless in the classroom but um yeah, that experience of being able to experiment and especially to gain, to really have a, a firsthand knowledge that this stuff can work, does work, can be done in certain ways. And now I've tried and experimented and implemented a variety of different ways and come to see, you know, uh, different paths to implementing this type of pedagogy and approach to teaching absolutely was formative and essential to, I think, not only getting into the PhD program at Columbia, because of course I pivoted from political science or political theory into philosophy and education, right? With an obvious focus on, on political and social issues. Um, but rec, but, you know, through the person, especially of John Dewey, which is another common thread here between your work, my studies and interests, and also the practice of teaching itself. And, of and course, Columbia University itself. Exactly. John Dewey, one of the founding figures at Teachers College and, a, and an enormously influential uh, figure at, at Columbia generally. In fact, it was just like his birthday, maybe today, honestly, John Dewey's birthday, I think. And you're not dressed up as John Dewey? How disappointing. Yeah, I should have, right? I need a big robe. He wore like the most preposterous clothing. But, uh, but all of that combined then brought me to this point where I have this, I, what feels to me now like a very effortless approach to teaching, but which is the result of all this stuff, you know, together. And I think, I mean, some of it also has to do, you know, Howard Gardner and others have talked about multiple intelligence and one of Gardner's proposed categories of intelligence that I don't think he's actually written much about, but I know that he has commented on this is pedagogical intelligence. In other words, he thinks there's, he thinks there's a distinct intelligence or capacity related to teaching and learning um, that is, that is, or can be separate from other types of intelligence like kinesthetic or whatever. So, How do you know about this if, if he's not written about it? Because he, he, the only thing that I know of that he's written about on it is in response to a reader inquiry. He, he used to post, I don't even know if he's still alive, honestly, but he, he used to post stuff on his website, like uh, letters from people. And one of them uh, was asking something to this effect. And he wrote maybe a page about it. And said, yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, lately, I think maybe even said he was working on a, an article or a book about it. I don't know if it ever came to fruition, but I mean, I, I think I saved that, that short page. If you're interested, sure. I could probably send it to you, but he, yeah, he talked do. about, yeah, he talked about that. And I thought, okay, you know, that doesn't surprise me and makes total sense to me. And I think whatever other intelligence I may have some significant part of it is rooted in that and not, and I know this in, in large part because so much of my 
especially prior to coming to college, but even at college and really always so much of my learning has been self-taught, right? Yeah. I used to just sleep through class you know, in high school and, and just go to the library. So yeah, anyway, that's a long-winded answer to your question, but I think uh, all of that stuff combined and especially the, the actual experience of teaching and especially of teaching the same students or a small, relatively homogenous group of students for extended periods of time for, for every day, you know, two hours a day, five days a week for a year or whatever is different from twice a week for an hour, never talking to and often not even learning the names of your students, you know, which is the more of the undergrad lecture hall experience. Yeah. So you I have to have a seating now. chart. Yeah, exactly. Identify I mean, people. And I still don't know, even now, these classes I'm teaching now, I don't know the students' names. You know, it's a, it's impossible. How, how large are your classes at Fordham? For uh, they're relatively small, honestly, 35 each, but it's too large to do a seminar, uh, you know, and I teach, but I teach it like a seminar. And this is where I was thinking like some of what we were talking about earlier about like how you're a little less, uh, forthright or whatever in your own perspective and views in seminar and and i think i am more that way when i'm teaching seminars too i've just had fewer opportunities to teach 20 or less students you know or 10 or less you know whatever but when i'm teaching at a lecture i try as much as possible to pretend like it's a seminar. I just speak extemporaneously and as, as casually or conversationally as possible. And I find that that even if students don't necessarily participate or speak back at the same, sort of at the same uh, amount, right? I'm still talking most of the time because it's, I have to expound on shit, you know? It, uh, Nevertheless, when they do speak, it's very, it's like, boom, like it's just me and them, whoever's, whatever student is speaking right then and there, it's, we're just having a conversation. It's like they're chiming into a conversation that I've been having with myself that they've been listening to, if that makes any sense. Sure. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I like the way that that um, entices students to, for example, connect the text to their personal lives or be open about things in ways that you might suspect that they would be reticent to do if they didn't feel some kind of warmth or familiarity that I think is conjured up by my speaking style as I'm quote unquote lecturing. So they don't hesitate to interrupt they wouldn't hesitate to raise a question while you're speaking. Raise a question, yes. Interrupt, not so much. But they'll raise hands and they'll chime in with things, especially as I'm going. So it's like I might talk for five or 10 minutes or maybe one minute about a particular sentence, or we do a lot of close sort of group close readings together. And then I'll open it up more. And it's sort of this uh, dynamic back and forth, or maybe even dialectic, right? Between me monologuing and then us dialoguing. And but but not not uh, laid out or, or planned. No, huh? no, it's just right. me being a stand-up philosopher, right? As Mel Brooks would say, 
the inspiration for the name of this podcast bullshit artists taken from in fact mel brooks by the way is doing a sequel to history of the world part one which is what the title of this podcast is taken from and that stand-up ph- uh, philosopher concept is taken from he's doing a sequel is history he of the world it? part two he's writing it and executive producing it at, gonna at say, age because 95 he, uh, yeah he's old enough to have seen a lot of the history <laughs> of the world now yeah right <laughs> so. So, but yeah, I sit, I sit on a stool at the front of the room and speak like this and, uh, yeah, I don't know. It seems to work. So, yeah, then you keep doing it. Uh, if it doesn't seem to work, you got to change it up, do something else. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, we've been, it's been on my mind a lot cause they just took their midterm and I had all these crazy questions for them. And we've been reading stuff that also bears on what we were talking about earlier. Like they read an excerpt from Augustine's confessions. And I was talking to them about uh, the way in which he's self-reflecting and having a sort of multiple perspectives on himself at the same time, all these issues we were talking about memory earlier and, and these types of concerns can a a person really reflect on their own lives accurately or are things embellished like for for people who don't know i mean i've never read the whole confessions and i probably never will but there's an anecdote in the confessions where augustine is recounting having stolen some pears as a 16 year old with some friends and he's like really racked with guilt about this, or at least he seems to be in the text, about not, in my view, it's not so much about having stolen the pears per se, but he says again and again that he's upset with himself because he he enjoyed the stealing for its own sake. And he just seems to think that that was like deeply fucked up to enjoy sinning or commit, you know, engaging in vice that for its own sake, not in other words, not for the sake he wasn't starving and he stole pears because he was starving or whatever. He stole pears just sort of for fun and because of the thrill of theft. And he's all hung up on that. And so we just talked about, you know, because they're much closer to 16 than to Augustine's age when he's writing the memoir or to my age. They're mostly 18, 19 year old freshmen and sophomores. So just trying to get them to wonder, you know, or think about what it, that experience of self-reflection from a distance on one's own life and reevaluating or reassessing prior events and telling a new story about them, re-narratizing your life, all that stuff, stuff that, you know, that I have a keen interest in. So hard to imagine being racked with guilt about stealing pears yeah right uh yeah but of course it's a very different culture very different time yeah i don't know why they'd be racked with guilt but then of course you're in the context of sinning and he's saint augustine and okay i guess that (laughs) makes some sense uh is fordham a jesuit i think that it is yes (laughs) (laughs) You think that it is? Okay, well, there's a rock-solid view. I rarely know what day of the week it is, Jack, or what time my classes start. Just enough to get out there and do the the classes. So do you, 
uh, do you prepare for class or you just go in and you wing it? Say, here's the reading assignment. I here's, always here's what oh, I was okay. thinking about when I read this this excerpt, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about it for a while. That's pretty much what I do. I always read the text, you know, either the night before or a few days before the class, and I'll make note of key points that I want to make sure I hit. But it's like when I see certain things in the text, it just it's like seeing the tip of an iceberg. And I know that below the tip of that is 45 minutes of me talking about stuff. And so I don't have to prepare in that sense. It's already yeah. there yeah. and it's going to come out as soon as I start talking about it, which is nice. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. have well, to spend prep in, time. In a version of my novel, Pinzac, now available on Amazon, and everywhere <laughs> everywhere books are sold <laughs> everywhere mediocre books are sold um i had i don't remember what version of the of the manuscript i subjected you to but there have been multiple iterations i think i have five different ones you have five different ones yeah it yeah. started with 700 pages but somewhere in there and it's been cut out of the of the one that's now of the version that's now published i have a discussion about lecturing and I've got in the in the novel, and I believe this is an accurate reflection of my own view. <laughs> lecturing really only has one purpose that, that I can identify as as authentic. And that is the opportunity to oh the, let me back up for a minute and say this is lecturing on on substance texts, for example, that the students will have read. So it's not introducing material that you must lecture them on to prepare them for something. This, this is stuff that they've read, just the way you're using Augustine. The only justification I can see for lecturing is the one that you've offered and the one that you do, that the point of it is for students to be able to see somebody more schooled than they, not necessarily smarter, not necessarily deeper, but more schooled, who has attended to the text either at greater length or in a different way, usually mm -hmm. meaning greater depth. <laughs> and then what you're doing in the lecture is you're demonstrating to the students how you think about the text. Right. And the hope is that uh, they will see a mind at work. That's the right. point of lecturing. Now, very few faculty do that because they don't want to get caught out. They don't want to come across looking indecisive, looking dumb, looking confused, because this goes back to your point about authority. They think at some level that they have amassed authority based upon their uh immersing themselves in texts and, and having greater experience, whatever, whatever their definition of, of the source of authority happens right. to be. Expertise, I think, is there probably. It's what they are. hope they have. Yeah, yeah exactly. And they don't want to get caught not demonstrating that. Right. They don't want to, and so they don't lecture on things they haven't really fully prepared or thought about. They don't want to introduce a new problem. I think that's why they're often reluctant to engage in question and answers 
mm. uh, except at the end of, a, of the class when there's very little time, because I think it can be embarrassing. Now, this of course leads to the, the proposition, which I think is probably widespread within the academy of the imposter syndrome, where people right. feel that they, they're just frauds and they're, they're just trying to cover that they're frauds. And if they actually have to strip away the facade of learning and deal with something that they hadn't thought about a lot, then they're, they're gonna get caught. They're gonna look bad. They're gonna look stupid. And you're doing the opposite of that, right? You're saying, I'm gonna think aloud here for a while. Right. And if, if I say something that seems, that, that is worth comment, commenting on, either because it's something that has stimulated you or something that you're, is confusing or something that seems wrong, you're giving them the, f- the freedom to do that. Yes. So they're seeing somebody th- thinking. Uh, and that's the point of the lecture. I Otherwise, agree. I don't know what the fuck you're doing. You're just, you know, you're. You're pontificating. Yeah, pontificating, showing off, you're, you're wasting, you're killing time. I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, no, I agree. I think you captured it well. And I appreciate the way you just put all of that. Because I think that's, I, I think that's a pretty accurate, especially since you haven't really seen me do this. So the fact that you're able to get the, that impression from what I've described is well, sort of re- I, reassuring to me. <laughs> you you left the impression because you 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 said it. You said you will read the you make sure you read the text before class. Right. Something will strike you because the 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 text is rich. Yeah. You know, it's not by accident that Augustine was taught within the Great Books program. The Confessions taught within the Great Books program. There's something rich there, and so you're stimulated by some thought as you say it's the tip of the iceberg and off you go right right yeah now i don't know if somebody in the class would be bold enough to say how did you get to that point (laughs) and you go okay let me retrace that and then you retrace your steps and you think about that and you think about the connections the the uh ligaments that are connecting these things yeah that's 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 otherwise lecturing is just masturbation intellectual (laughs) masturbation yeah i completely agree and i think i mean so much of what you said i think has certain um avenues to be pursued which is that you know not only am i trying to model this you know thinking process which i think has significant benefits in and of itself but i'm also striving to do it in a way that invites participation and sort of co-creation like a joining so it's a in other words i'm trying to create a collective mind or something you know within the classroom that is like focused through me as the prism or whatever at the at the helm at the front of the room but that is just a as, as nearly as can be a collection or a, an entity, it's like Whitehead says, the many become one and are increased by one, right? So that's the voices in the classroom together become something bigger, this collective mind, I guess. And I, I just find that if, when it really succeeds, which is some, which is, you know, fleeting, I think, but it rises and falls, then it, then it's like a, it's in a really special experience that you can't get anywhere else that I've found, 
where you have people thinking together at the same time about the same thing in the same way, in the same place. And sort of combining their consciousnesses or at least their attention and their focus in that way. It's a very unique experience. Sure. You you won't remember this and there isn't any reason why you should. (laughs) But in uh, my book, Why Does the World? I talked about this perspective offered by the physicist David Baum. Mm. And Baum said, I think the book he wrote is I think the title is on dialogue, but he said, I have the book. I haven't read it. I bought it because (laughs) of what you're about to say. (laughs) He he says that in, in dialogue, and I'm not sure there's a necessarily a limit to the number of people involved. I don't remember whether he talks about that. He said, there is the creation of an, of a different level of consciousness through the dialogue that these people in dialogue are sharing. Mm -hmm. Now it's a, it's clearly an altered state because it's not a state that you then carry with you when you leave the classroom or that you can necessarily reproduce in exactly the same form at the next dialogue, but the next dialogue will create another dialogical consciousness within that group. Uh, And he says, and he, because he's a physicist, he uses the example. I think this is right. He uses the example of the laser that it's that collected consciousness is like a like a laser on a topic or an issue. Mm. It becomes so focused. The collectivity becomes uh, like different strands of light through the dialogue brought together to one point that becomes incredibly penetrating. Yes. Yeah. So that's what you're doing. Yeah, that makes total sense. I got to read course, that book. I know I may it's have so... misre- misremembered all of it and made it up, but I don't think so. I think, yeah, <laughs> no, I think that's, I think that's right. Cause I remember, I think, I don't know if that was the first time I'd ever heard of bomb or bomb was in your book, but it may well have been cause that book is now 10 years old. Right. So, yeah. um, yeah. So it may well have been, but I purchased that, that text and I never got around to reading it. It's a short book, I know, but pretty short. Uh, yeah. You know, I have so many to read, but but yeah, I mean, it also if when you pull it off, and especially like you know, again, when I was teaching high school and had the opportunity to do that day in and day out for an extended period of time, it also creates a certain sense of community and an intimacy that is unlike or really like a, a communion, you know, in that sense, almost like a religious or Without the, I don't I don't know how to put it, but maybe you get what I'm what I'm getting at here, like a a special club, uh, because by virtue of participation in this shared experience, you know, uh, which is maybe not unlike some of the things that we have talked about in prior encounters about the possibility right. of you know ritualized collective right. usage of psychedelics and other things where you're sharing in a transcendental experience or whatever with other people, a real sense of community and closeness that, uh, yeah, is just can be quite powerful. Um, yeah. Yeah, Which which is the, the value of worship. Yeah. You bring people together, whatever the, the denomination, whatever the religion is, you bring people together into uh, into communion with some 
transcendental force, however you think you're doing it, whether it's through the Eucharist or it's through chanting or dancing or meditative practice, whatever it is, you are, you're, you're forming, uh, I think, a more powerful collective consciousness. And one thing I would say, taking us back to the beginning of our conversation, when you meditate in a group, there is a force there way more powerful than when you're meditating alone. Mm. And it's palpable. It's because not only in what you're experiencing, but just what you're feeling and then what you experience, it's just, uh, it, it's the rocket ship. I mean, it's, uh, it, so uh, depending on what the ritual is, what the ceremony is, how that communion is operating, you can really create some transcendental sense uh, for the whole group. Yeah. Now, I I I I do not deny that that um, there were people having that experience at Catholic Mass when the Mass was in Latin. Nobody knew what the fuck people were saying. <laughs> right. But it, that wasn't it. It was the rhythm of the language and and uh, right. and being together with this purpose, right, to e experience the glory of the transcendent. Mm -hmm. That that is incredibly powerful. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, not surprising. We've talked about <laughs> yeah the importance of ritual and other things. Yes. Yeah. So they, it's a nice way to think about a classroom. I don't think very many people do. What, <laughs> no. Really, that what you're doing there is uh, the focus is on transcending the moment, not the not the moment in which you are, not the ground of all being moment, the now. But the moment that's brought these students together and you with them into this moment that is elevating everybody in the class, mm -hmm. that it does become a communion, a form of communion. Uh, you know, it is, so therefore, you see a sense of community through the communication, uh, which is built around this communion. So it's, uh, it's a ritualized, but also in some ways, a, a, a sacred space. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's it's interesting when you put it that way, too, because it's like I'm at a Catholic school, right? Like, yeah. I'm not Catholic. I'm not even Christian. And, you know, I, I don't know what I am, uh, but nothing in those senses. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, not in the conventional way anyway. And uh, and nevertheless, and it's like, where else? I wonder what kinds of genuinely transcendent experiences these students are getting uh, and i mean not all of them are devout catholics you know although i'm sure many of them are perhaps even most but i just wonder i i genuinely wonder like i don't know enough about the school or the other classes or what opportunities they have and maybe someday if i stick around in new york and spend more time teaching at fordham i'll have the opportunity to learn more about what is going on there uh as it is i can barely handle my own classes but but it would be well ask your of, students yeah maybe i will ask them say what are your other classes like tell me what the setup is in your classes are they run like this what, i know the answer to that which is not no <laughs> well but, but do you know that they prefer what you do is it different that they think you're a freak yeah <laughs> or do well, they I will say I've, I got an email about a week or two ago from the assistant dean of Fordham College, Lincoln Center, 
And he said that he had been interviewing new students one by one uh, as at the sort of the approaching the halfway point of the semester. And he said that time and time again, when he asked them, the first question he asked every student is, what's your favorite class? And many of them said philosophy. And many of them, when he asked who teaches their philosophy class, said me. So that's some feedback I have, some recent feedback that I have from the assistant dean, which is, you know, I have 70 some students and it was, he was getting enough feedback from them and consistently. So for him to email me and CC my department chair and to say, I was just going to say, get that email to your department chair. Yeah, he did. He was, it was very nice, very nice gesture of this guy who I had never met and still have not met, but I hope to meet him soon. The assistant Dean, I looked him up. He's been at Fordham for like 15 years or something. So, um, but yeah, so, I mean, so that's, that's some feedback, recent feedback I have. I have feedback from reviews, you know, and, and just personal interactions with students who have said, you know, this is a great class and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that, that stuff, that doesn't matter to me per se, you know, at, at a personal level, it does like one-on-one with students, but I don't care about having being recognized or honored in any, in any way, you know, teacher of the year or whatever kind of bullshit. What matters to me is that uh, some students and maybe, maybe many students are having a, in a significant and good experience in my class, you know? So that's, that's what I'm going for. But, yeah. you know, it also, but when you were talking about like the sacred and all that kind of stuff, it just reminded me too of like what's really happening or what my real intentions such that they are in the class. I don't care about any student becoming an expert on Plato or whatever, you know, if that's their interest and they want to pursue philosophy and study these things and become knowledgeable about the texts in a, in a robust way. Cool. That's, that's great. That's probably going to be one or two students per semester, you know, that end up majoring in philosophy in a world where only business degrees are valued, you know, but what I care about is the, and I think I often think about this way with the class this particular class that I teach at Fordham, because it's basically philosophy 101 and it's required for all students is this may be their only opportunity to have a class like this. This may be their only brush with this kind of thinking and, and philosophy and all this kind of stuff. So what do I want them to get out of it? Or what do I want them at least to have the opportunity to get out of it and the experience to have, which is some kind of what, is the experience of some kind of space or environment where genuine transformative de- growth or development cannot necessarily occur, but can be at least like a seed planted or a, you know, a, 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 a first domino pushed in a, in a row or whatever. Do, do you know what I'm getting at? Like just this, since we know that most colleges today are not geared towards like human development in the way that you and I think about it, like this very deep and transformative psychological developmental psychological view, consciousness heightening and expansion, all this kind of stuff. Then my class, if I succeed can be a chance 
for that to occur in a place that is actually, I would argue, inimical to such development and growth. So if I can do that, then that's, I'm pretty pleased. And you should be. <laughs> you shouldn't be satisfied. Yeah. But you should be pleased. Because as you say, you, th this is going to be an extreme metaphor. You are the oasis in the desert. It's <laughs> right. not quite, it's not quite that bad, right. but the, the problem with the oasis is that you come, you drink and you move on back into the desert. And that, that would be my concern that you are one, one moment in their collegiate lives. Is it enough to plant the seed to get them to the nurture that seed? Mm. Or do they plant it and like so many plants that I've killed, you ignore it, the thing dies, you go, eh, all right, and you move on. Yeah. That's the concern, right? So as you and I have talked about this before, you, you, you want a, an entire school, K through college, that has an integrated view on, on what uh, education is about. Right. So, yeah, if you had them for a year, if you could say to these students, look, now you have to take, all of you have to sign up for the next course with me in, in the spring. Exactly. You stuck with me for a while. Yeah. A way that you could re then reinforce the things they're learning, because it, it is probably too much to ask them to develop a, not a philosophy of life. They're not developing that. They're, they're developing an approach to, to thinking and understanding, mm. right? To first comprehending and then to understanding. And will they take it with them in everything they do, in the way they approach personal problems, social problems, political problems? Uh, is there a path for them to, to think about you know, what you're offering, how you're offering it, why you're offering it. And will they carry that with them? I hope they do. <laughs> I just worry about the oasis in the desert. No, I, I, I take your point. And I think certainly that that's true for some or maybe even most students, right? Like uh, the, it, it depends a lot on what they're bringing to the situation as well, right? So it's not all me. It's maybe not even mostly me. It's mostly them, but uh, one way that I think about it is in terms of how it can be lasting, even for those kinds of students, is like thinking of the imagery of the cave, right? The allegory of the cave, which of course we read and talk about and all that kind of stuff. But if it, like in one semester, probably no one's going to get get out of the cave, right? That's right. a pretty lofty goal. And even for them to start walking up the rough, steep path is unlikely, maybe some. But if I can get as many as possible to perceive a crack in the roof of the cave or something like that. You not know? even that. Yeah. If you can get them to turn and see the fire. Right. It's just something that first initial suspicion yeah. that something see what is illuminating the things yes. that we are experiencing. Right. Just that. Just whatever that first peak, you know, is, then that's it because you can't unsee that shit, you know, 
once yeah. you are aware of the matrix or once you know you're in the cave and the fire is lighting the puppets you know behind you and all that kind of stuff that's all it takes i think if if a student just grasps that they can't ungrasp it you know they might bury it for a while or whatever but i really i, I at least i believe personally that you can't you can't completely erase or ignore that awareness now it, maybe it could be it could become so dormant that it stays dormant your whole life right in the platonic cosmology of things <laughs> but nevertheless the exposure to it at sort of that soul level is in is you know inerasable or whatever well that's the hope yeah if you could tie it to joy somehow <laughs> I mean, and i say that because it might be too easy for them to say, this is a one-off. Mm. This is Verado teaching philosophy and, that, and that's great. I love the way he does it. I really like the philosophy class, but that's the philosophy class. Over here, I'm mm. studying the real stuff. It's compartmentalized, yeah. basically. It's, it, because that's what we do. Right. Right, and we compartmentalize it. It, it. There's the individual professor in the individual class, in the individual discipline, within the individual college. That's true. Right. So it becomes, so they are bombarded with different examples. Right? And so I don't, I don't know how, and maybe that just doesn't matter. Maybe you just say, look, it, it's, it's the way I used to think about why I wrote a book. <laughs> that my image was, I wrote a book. I did it for one specific reason. I wanted to know what I thought about some issue. And I thought about it as deeply and systematically as I could. And the product of that thinking was a book. Okay. Oh, well, I know what I think about this now. Okay. I, I know what I think about that. So that was just for me. The second reason was, well, why publish it then? You thought about it. You, you came to your conclusions. You've got the manuscript. Why do, you, why do you need to publish it? Because my thought was someday it might happen that somebody somewhere stumbles onto this book and pulls it off the shelf and starts reading and says, oh, this is pretty interesting. I hadn't, oh, I hadn't thought about it this way or I hadn't thought about this. That's it. Yep. That's enough for me. <laughs> and it might be enough for you to say, if I am sparking the interest of one student and somehow that spark becomes itself a fire, and it's the internal fire of this student going forward. This is the way that student will process, will think about things, will look at things, will regard things. There you go. That's, is that victory enough for you? Yes. Yeah, I mean, oh, I think right. it is. It's, it's always, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't take much, I think, to be satisfied because there's also, I think, in both teaching and writing, it's a self, it's a, it's very fulfilling you know, on its own, it's intrinsically valuable. Like you were just saying, like you're writing what you're writing to figure out what you think about it and you get satisfaction from that. And it's enjoyable in and of itself. And any, uh, that additional benefit where you hope maybe someone pulls it off the shelf someday and reads it and is inspired or whatever, intrigued by it. That's like, that's just the cherry on top. And so I feel similarly about teaching. Like I enjoy it 
myself for its own sake. And of course, I, I certainly want and hope that the students are getting benefits from it too. But that, that for me is not, it, whether it's one student or a million students, that it, it's not the quantity, you know, it's a, right. it's a qualitative thing, right. you know, that matters. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's been a great experience being able to teach at Fordham like this and to, to be on this journey. I'm looking forward now. Hopefully I'm going to apply for this position at Columbia for next year, teaching a different class, similar class in the core curriculum. And Is so that, that's within your own program? No, so it's your like program is graduate program. So that it, yeah, it wouldn't be. Exactly. It's and it's at Columbia College, like the undergrad and like a Columbia proper, so to speak. What's the course? Uh, it's part of the core curriculum. And it's it, basically they took that old great books program that you were talking about. That was like Mortimer Adler from 100 years ago or whatever. Right. And they they cracked that open into a few different sort of focus areas so there's like literary humanities i think it's called and i might apply for that one although it involves it includes quite a few texts that i haven't personally read yet so there'd be more prep involved then there's like a music one i think and a science one and then there's contemporary civilization they call it which is the real you know that's the basically political theory uh you know plato to nato uh whatever and that's what I'll apply for. So it's, I don't think there's a single text I haven't read and, and most of them I've taught already. So this, the core curriculum is something that every undergraduate has to take. In Columbia college. In so Columbia Col college. Yeah. Right. Columbia yeah. university has a few, not many, I don't think, but a handful of constituent colleges kind of like we've talked about this before, kind of like the UK system, you know, like Oxford has a bunch of colleges and whatever right within it and so the columbia college is kind of the premier and i think main college within columbia and every student in columbia college has to take the core curriculum yeah well the difference i think with the oxford system is that the colleges are are uh, it's like a federal system they are independent but they offer the full curriculum mm. Right. So it wouldn't be that you would go to, I don't know what other schools are that are within Columbia that are the equivalent of Columbia College. I think there's like a, a science and engineering, like highly focused college where they don't have to take, they take some of the core curriculum. Yeah, but so not that would be different from, from the Ox, Oxbridge system, as they say. Mm. Uh, there's something I was going to mention to you about applying. Oh, I was going to ask you, uh, I don't know how large Columbia College is, but are they are they always looking for people to teach these classes because there's so many students who need the courses, so they need it's like teaching, you know, the freshman comp at ASU. You've got hundreds of maybe not at Columbia College, hundreds of students. Oh, I guess maybe you do have hundreds yeah. of students who need to take this course, so you need lots of sections. That's my understanding is that there's quite a few, there's, there's a need. And in fact, they, this program that I'll be applying for is relatively new. And I think it was basically created to fill that need or to meet that need that you're alluding to. They couldn't get enough adjuncts or whatever. So they started recruiting 
graduate, you know, advanced graduate students from within right. Columbia to teach these courses themselves. Um, yeah. So, but, yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. And then you'd, you'd give up the Fordham gig? I would. Yeah, I'd have to, at least while I was teaching that. It would only be, well, it, if I get it, it would be for one academic year like the like next academic year and the pay is really good as far as uh these types of things go so i would i would definitely prioritize that over fordham or any anywhere else that i might be teaching yeah but that for me would be sort of the apotheosis right you know it's like here's the original premier great books program in the i guess in the world really and uh, to be able to take what I have learned teaching that way and, and at times under that curriculum for a period of years and apply it at the highest level would really be, uh, you know, would be a, a, a huge achievement in my life personally, as far as I'm concerned. So that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> I had a class when I was a senior in college taught by uh, a professor, assistant professor who was just out of graduate school. I guess this was, this was in the spring of my senior year. Uh, and he was, it must've been his second semester. Um, his name is, is Tony Smith. The course he taught international relations about which I, didn't know a great deal. I'd taken a couple of classes just because they were required political science majors. The course was uh, political novel, political novels. Mm. When I retired from ASU, he was still, he may still be teaching. So I Jesus. sent him, a, I wrote him a letter. Yeah. And I said, you're not going to remember me, but I was in this course. I said, this, this course had one of the most profound impacts on my life. One text in particular you will appreciate that I, he introduced me to was Arthur Kersler's Darkness at Noon. I almost interrupted you earlier and asked, but I wanted to wait and see if that's where you're going. Yeah. I knew that's what you're going to say. Okay. And I told him that. I said, this has had a profound impact on me. I've taught it numerous times. Um, and I didn't tell him this, but I'm telling you and listeners, my hope is at some point to do, to adapt that novel as a play. Ah. Um, but I wrote, I wrote him. And, and as I said, that, first, it's really rare that you get letters from, from former students. Second, it's rare that you get letters from former students 50 years later. Right. <laughs> He's still teaching. <laughs> and I said, I just wanted to tell you that the way you conducted the class, we were all peers. Right. He didn't, he didn't treat us at all. We were un seniors, undergraduates, almost all of us, I think. Small seminar. And he treated us like peers sitting around a table talking about these novels. And the beauty of that was that he didn't care where we came from within the, the college. He just wanted to know how, these, how we were responding to these novels. And because they were novels, there wasn't any background that he had to give us. Right. We were just reacting to them. So it was an incredibly powerful experience for me. And he wrote back. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I'd forgotten this part about him. 
he began drifting off into the, his areas of research about which I cared not at all. <laughs> right. I didn't care about it when he responded to my letter. And I certainly didn't care about it 50 years ago when I was a student <laughs> in his class. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted, I didn't want anything from him other than to say, thank you for doing that. And I think I said, do you teach it anymore? And of course the answer was no. Yeah. No, I don't teach that anymore. I said, okay, well, maybe I was the only student, but who loved that class. <laughs> yeah, but that's uh, that's the one person, right? That we're talking right. about. You 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 have a have had an effect on one person. Yes. Yeah, that's awesome, and that yeah. sounds like a sweet class. It also reminds me that I need to reread Darkness at Noon because I think I don't know if I've ever actually read it in full. I think I only read whatever you may have assigned that one. I time assigned you... the whole novel. You oh, well, that doesn't mean I read the whole no, thing. No, of course it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. But I remember I asked a question. I asked the same question. I taught it in the uh, I taught it the first year I was at ASU. I had a course and I think it was called Political Theory and the Novel because mm -hmm. I had this huge political ideologies class with 200 students. Right. I think they wanted to give you a large class and a small class. So it was some kind of balancing bullshit. So generous. I don't remember. <laughs> but I remember the reason I remember that course, political theory in the novel, is that I had a student who had just come back from a Mormon mission mm. and was an avowed Marxist. <clears throat> and I found ah. that fascinating. He was both at the same time? Both at the same time. Wow. Yeah, which was fascinating. Okay. But anyway, yeah. we read Darkness at Noon there. <laughs> and then I, you may not have ever read it with me. You may only have read it because read it read it because you were my ta yeah that uh, seems with, right i taught with, in a moral dilemmas class every time i taught moral dilemmas i assigned a darkness at noon that seems right because i feel like i yeah i, I don't remember actually having to read it i sort of voluntarily kind of read it yeah i think that's yeah. probably right and i don't and i think i exempted you from any uh, grading responsibilities because I asked the same essay question every time. And that is why does Rubishoff die in silence? Yeah. And, uh, and it was also the only time that I, I was looking for whether a student could crack the nut <laughs> because it's complicated. Yeah. And it's, it's not complicated. I don't think it's complicated because the issue is difficult. I think it's complicated because Kersler is writing a novel and he's leaving clues, right? He respects the reader enough not to, to say, here is the conclusion, right? So this is a broader discussion, but it strikes mm. me that if you have confidence in your, your inferences in an argument, you don't ever, ever, ever have to give the inference. Just mm. give the argument right? Lay out the argument. And that's what I think Kersler's doing. I think he respects his readers enough to say, I'm not going to give you the answer here. Right. He's giving them are, the, the pieces or whatever. Here are to the make, pieces. Here are yeah. the clues. Here are the things that I'm showing how this explains his behavior. It, to, to me, it's absolutely brilliant. It, it's <laughs> one of the most brilliant pieces of, of writing because he uh, is dealing with something that's incredibly important right? the mm. nature and the depth and the danger of totalitarian thinking um yeah so anyway uh why did i get on that oh yeah because he assigned <laughs> this novel in class and i was just completely blown away and and he didn't have <laughs> i remember uh 
he said something in class like when we when we were trying to answer the question, why does Rubishoff die in silence? He goes, well, none of you got it. <laughs> and I thought, God damn it. Fuck, I thought I had it. <laughs> why not? Yeah. yeah. So then it was a wrestling. It was wrestling. I was wrestling with it. So assigning that later on when I taught was for me also the challenge of, of being able to renew my, my mm. quest. It was my holy grail <laughs> with my spear in hand. Yes. Uh, well, that's that's incredible. And it also inspires me to actually closely read the book. I mean, I've read other Kersler. I mean, the guy was a bona fide genius, in yeah. my opinion, you know, yeah. and he's not really, you know, widely regarded. I mean, like that book, no. you know, but like no one talks about his ideas, like by association and all these right. crazy yeah. fucking ideas he has. Yeah. He had some really interesting ideas. He personally, uh, I think he was a renowned womanizer. He was a he was a dipshit. Yeah, uh, I, I, think I read his reasons, Wikipedia. He's kind of an asshole, from what yeah, I can tell. I think the reasons I, I have this huge biography of his, but I, which I want to read before I launch off into my <laughs> into my adaptation. But it's getting in the way of this book on Plato's Republic, which I don't know that I, I actually want to do. I don't know. I have to. Maybe you and I will talk about that at some point. Yeah, I'm still. I mean, I know that's a long gestating. Yeah, project really, of yours so yeah. i hate to see it scuttled but you know if it's holding you back from other things then fuck it you know but yeah well it, it, here's the issue for you going forward as a scholar and a writer is it a project that you're afraid of and so you keep putting it off mm -hmm. or is there really something there that you're thinking maybe you need to reevaluate uh, and that's where I am. Like it's not ready or you just need no, it. It isn't that it's the, what is the purpose of doing it? Uh, um, yeah, that's the issue for me. Uh, yeah. So I'll have to think about that going forward. Um, that's fair. Yeah. I mean, that's where, as your, as our listeners may very well know, the allegory of the cave uh appears in Plato's Republic. It is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful uh, allegories, metaphors, images, maybe in Western literature, because it's so rich, because it's dealing with human development. It's dealing with uh, the, the stages that we, that we go through. We, I think Plato, Socrates, <laughs> hopes that we can go through. Uh, but the issue that hangs me up about it is, is the role of the philosopher. Mm -hmm. How serious do we have to take that term? And because they're Greeks, I take it in the broadest possible sense, not in a narrow academic uh, sense of philosophy. Um, but is so it worth talking about? I don't know. No, it is. I'm very intrigued now. And I mean, this now I feel like this may bleed into the next episode because you're at, I want to, I don't fully understand what you're asking yet. Are you wondering what the philosopher is to do or how you define what a philosopher is in this context or both of those things? It, yes, it's both of those things. And the second part, what 
a philosopher does or has to do can sometimes be understood in the context of how you define a philosopher. Hmm. And it seems to me it's really easy for students of the Republic, whether they are coming to it for the first time or they are professors teaching it, can fall into a definition that's too readily given and not sufficiently examined. Uh, but just Which to give, is... well, to give you an example, early on, earlier on in the Republic, Socrates describes what he says is the perfect city. I don't know if he calls it the ideal city. Maybe he does. And this is the city that is very Spartan. Mm. Maybe <laughs> both uh, in its generic sense and in its particular sense. Um, right. It consists of people. There has been a division of labor, but the community produces for itself what it needs. The community is pretty much self-contained. Uh, the, the wants of the people are pretty narrow. There are rituals. There are festivals. Uh, there's, a, there's a rich communal life. And it's at that point that Plato's brothers, the interlocutors, say, well, hang on a minute. This is too simple. We can't live like this. This is a city of pigs. Right, the city for pigs. Right. This is the, this. Where are the couches? Where are the roasted meats? Right. Where <laughs> where are the where are the yeah the the luxurious couches and the robes we wear and the and the roasted meats and and Socrates says, oh, I see. Okay, y you want a luxurious city? All right, I understand now. Mm -hmm. But my question to Plato, it, it, and this is what I would do in the book, wouldn't be. Hey, come on! Give me the luxurious velvet couches that I can lie upon, and the <laughs> roasted meats that I can eat. And, and no, the question would be: What's missing from your city? That would. For me, it's not luxury. That's not that's not crucial. What's missing? Hmm. Well, one one quick answer is, philosophy is missing. Hmm. Virtue is missing. There's virtue, but it's not virtue in the sense that you understand how you're behaving and why you're behaving that way, which is philosophy. Right. Now, our colleagues, my <laughs> colleagues, political theory would say, oh, what's missing is politics. I go, yeah, politics is missing, but you can imagine, and this brings us to Marx's view about the ideal society. You can imagine a time when, because classes have been dissolved, politics has been dissolved because there isn't any conflict. Right. There are, there are issues to be, decided right you know should we introduce a few more cattle because the community is growing a little bit okay those are issues to be decided and i guess in a sense that's political but not in the terms of, of exercising exerting power right in theory like it, if scarcity is resolved there does not need to be much politics right i think it yeah. was and for isaiah berlin that said like politics is like who gets what how you yeah, know, that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, I had written that down somewhere. Uh, politics is about uh, who gets what, when, and how. Yeah. Something like that. 
Uh, and but Marx, yeah, Marx is saying the same thing. He said, look, at some point, you, you when the class issues dissolve because everybody owns everything and is producing for one another, then that conflict, then politics is eliminated. Okay, but philosophy is should never be eliminated, right? Because it, you constantly want to wonder about the stars, nature, life, you know, birth, death, infinity. Uh, okay, so what does philosophy mean then? Philosophy just means the sense of, of, of curiosity and wonder. Now that I can see you carry along at every level of your development. You don't lose that. It becomes maybe more refined, more sophisticated, more focused broader, more transcendent, but the sense of, of that sense of philosophy doesn't change. So then you say, okay, what is it in the cave, <laughs> getting out of the cave, and then for Socrates coming back to the cave is underscored by this sense of philosophy. And if it's not a role you play, meaning you're not a philosopher king, what is it? You're a king in what sense? Okay, so now, now I'm, I've gone way too far afield. <laughs> no, no, no. Way too was... late. It, we've gone over the two-hour mark. That was, are we? We're, we're right about at that because we started about 15 minutes after we had originally planned to. So we can wrap things up here in a minute, but I have to respond a little bit to what you said. Okay. And, the, and then we can continue talking maybe about it next time. But I guess... Because for me, this must connect with your earlier and perhaps continued interest in the notion of compulsion for the philosopher to return to the cave, right? You, right. I know for a while you were really like, what is compelling or why do we need to compel the philosopher to return to the cave? And the, you know, then that can be resolved maybe within the text itself if, if we take Plato's answer right, which is that they feel a sense of political obligation, essentially, to a, to a system that deliberately created them. That's why he says they'll go down willingly because we'll be giving just orders to just people, right? So, but that's not, but then you're raising a whole lot more beyond that. That's just where my mind first went when you started talking about this. And, and then you brought in the city for pigs too, which always has fascinated me because I remember even the very first time I read the Republic, I was like, this city sounds pretty sweet. <laughs> like yeah. they have everything they need. They're satisfied. They don't have a life of luxury, but they're sort of self-sufficient and whatever, but they're, they're also not, they're also very static. Yeah. Which could make, yeah. Which could be stagnant. Yeah. Right. And maybe that in and of itself is part of the problem, right? Because Plato also in the Republic, I think in book eight, talks about the necessary and sort of unavoidable degeneration and regeneration of constitutions, right? And how they right. sort of shift and transform into one another. And so for him, if, if this is like organic or dynamic, then any system that purports to or actually achieves like permanent stasis is a problem you know maybe i'm just thinking out loud here along with what you're saying and like then okay so then in that, if that's the case then does the does the philosopher or the idea of philosophy connect in 
with that? Is the philosopher like a shepherd between transformations or I don't know, you know, I'm just thinking like the philosopher, because he uses the imagery that I always have found so compelling of the philosopher as an artist, right? Sketching constitutions, not just in institutions and at the social level, but at the personal level within the soul, looking to the ideal, looking back to the real, back and forth, sketching these things. And this is the creator. So is there, if we think of the cave as this ongoing process and like this flux of humanity across and between generations, is there like a carrying of the torch that has to be conducted and the philosopher maybe has a place in carrying that torch. I know I'm mixing a bunch of metaphors here, but <laughs> uh, I'm just like, hopefully you get what I'm kind of yeah, getting at. You're, like, you're, you're, um, you're improving. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm finding it fascinating to consider something the, that I hadn't considered before, which is this, this dynamism and this attempt at, facilitating or fostering growth as another added layer or dimension to the allegory of the cave itself, not just for individuals to be freed from the cave and to see society as contingent or whatever, but in this bigger scheme of things as a, as a, I mean, like you, like that line that you use from Dewey and the, at the, the opening of democracy's midwife, that democracy has to be born anew. Each generation of education is its midwife. Something like in that sense is what I'm getting at. Yes. I think you and I are on the same, same frequency there with that. When Rousseau describes the Republic as the greatest treatise on, ed on education ever written, you could read that in the narrow sense of focusing on Plato's educational system of how you raise the guardians, for example, where you censor certain kinds of stories, poems, he calls them, and you allow others, you emphasize some and you disregard others. And then you introduce the, the, the people with the souls of gold are able to elevate themselves and do finer and finer mathematics and think, think, in, in grander terms, that could be what Rousseau meant. I don't take it that way. I take it as the greatest treatise on education because it's the broadest sense of educare, right? Of, of drawing out. Well, what are you drawing out? You're drawing out the different levels of human development. Right. So when Plato talks about the different regimes the oligarchic regime, the democratic regime, the tyrannical regime, he juxtaposes that with, with the democratic man, the democratic man, the oligarchic man. That to me is the focus, right? That we never lose those, those people, those uh, characteristics never, never fall away from us. They're part of us because you need the tyrannical man in certain situations to survive. Right. And maybe you need the oligarchy man in certain situations. You certainly need the aristocratic man. So I think you can see the psychological development, but you've got to put it in a context where uh, 
it makes sense. And in a context where you understand, just as you were saying, that you're going to be moving from one to the other, sometimes you have to go back, but, but you are stretching out uh, maybe to what Aristotle says is the finest regime, the king, mm-hmm. kingship. But kingship in what sense? For Aristotle, I think he means a king. <laughs> For Plato, when he says a philosopher king, I think he has something very different in mind. And I think it depends on how you how you look at the psychological descriptions. Uh, but I think I have an answer for why a person is compelled to go back in the cave. And now I've forgotten what it is. I wrote it down the other day. <laughs> of course, this thing you've been pondering for a decade yeah, or more. <laughs> but I, yeah, I think I've discovered uh, an answer to that. Um, yeah, wow. which maybe I'll have to write the book and you'll have to read it. Yeah, exactly. Share it. There's a nice little cliffhanger uh, for the but I was listeners. Say one other thing about <laughs> the city of pigs, as you were saying, it, it's pretty sweet, except it seems it, it, it verges on becoming, uh, being static and therefore stagnant. Right. And and therefore dead. And therefore dead. And I, so I was thinking about this idea that I had about saying, well, what else is absent here? And this ties in with philosophy is virtue. Mm-hmm. And the best version of understanding virtue, I think, comes from Aristotle, which I believe he stole from Plato, not surprisingly. Yeah, I'm but sure Plato. he did. He stole every fucking thing he's ever thought. From yeah, Plato. but Plato was his teacher. Yeah, yeah. He, he just he just cut off parts of Plato that he didn't like. Um, right. But he has this view that in order for you to be virtuous, you have to exercise phronesis. You have to exercise some level of human uh, intelligence. And it's what he calls practical wisdom. Right. Well, what is practical wisdom? Practical wisdom is being able to, in a, in a, a situation, in a certain circumstance, being able to assess what the right action is for the right reason, in the right setting, with the right people at the right time. In All the right way. In the right way. All of that's the formula yep. for understanding how you, what the virtuous action is. Well, you can't have virtue, therefore, in the city of pigs if you don't have people exercising philosophy, which is the, the uh, analysis, uh, the analytics, uh, yes. uh, looking at, this, looking at the, the situational ethics. Um, so, yes, that, so, but it has nothing to do with luxuries. <laughs> this is the thing that, that, that is so, so crazy for me. The Republic, because I respect Plato as a writer and thinker, and because he's using because he's using Socrates as I think a stand-in for him, yeah. And because he has formulated this Socratic view of education that you are skilled enough, going right back to what you were describing as your thinking aloud in class, mm-hmm. because you are skilled enough and respectful, skilled enough in your practice and and respectful enough of your students that you let them take you where they want to go. Right. And along the way, you hope to show them maybe why this path isn't as good as another path. Right. Uh, He's saying, okay, you guys want luxuries. You want roasted meats and you want couches to lie on and find clothes to wear. All right, you want a luxurious city. Well, you know what that's going to require? You need more land. 
because you need these luxuries. And you know what that's going to require? It's going to require somebody to take that land and then somebody to defend that land. And that's going to require an army. And off he goes building this city. Yes. And which, so it almost, from that point of view, it almost wouldn't have matter what they said at that point. Well, yes, but I think it would. <laughs> if they had said, you know, Plato, sorry, you know, Socrates, sorry. what's missing here is virtue in among the citizens. Oh, and, right. And then he could have jumped to book 10. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Then he could have said, okay, well, what would that mean? Yeah. Now we can talk about, yeah, now we can talk. Let's get into the forms. Yep. And how do we know those? Here they are. How do we come to know them? Yes. Okay. You know, all the other stuff is bullshit. The, the, the luxurious city is just right. a complete waste of time. It's, it's a diversion. It's a it, MacGuffin. It's a red herring. It's, but it's, I think I really like what you're saying. And I think you're right, actually, in, until I think about it some more. And maybe I'll have some criticisms. But I think you're right. And I think, but even if it is, it's, it's an artifice. Right. He then it's like he's testing them. He's tapping them on the head with a little ball peen hammer <laughs> and saying, yeah. where, where are you at right now? What are you, yeah. what's your thought process? Okay. This is where you're at. You're, you need luxuries for your city. Okay. Now we have to talk about this for the next six hours and I have to walk you through down this path until we finally get to closer to where maybe he would have liked to have started in the first place, which is perhaps why the, uh, the Republic is so educationally compelling is because it's an actual, and we've talked about this before, it's like a, an enactment and demonstration of that educational process, regardless of the precise structuring of the content. Although well, it's essential in, this, in the sense we just described. Yeah, you're, you're right then in answering, it wouldn't matter what they said. Right. Because if Plato slash Socrates can get them to see the value of philosophy, of learning, then it doesn't matter because yes, you're going to have to go through, you're going to have to cross the, the rough seas of the mm -hmm. luxurious city and all the bullshit that I'm going to pile into that city, trying to get you <laughs> with the ball peen hammer to wake up. Right. Right. I'm going to present you with the noble lie, the, the theory of metals, right? Yes, Where all this crazy shit. Nobody <laughs> believes that. What is what? No. And they're going, okay, yeah, well, that makes yeah, sense. Of course, Socrates. Yeah. So he has to... He, Yes, yeah, so if you can accept the, the premise of philosophy, he will get you there. Right. It's going to be long. Right. It's the long path. <laughs> right. Man, I'm taking the long path the here. The crooked path, too, yeah. because, you know, you mentioned rough waters, and it brings to mind for me the ship of state analogy, where he's, you know, that's an exact example. And it's like he talks about tacking at some point, too, right? It's like sometimes a straight line is not the way to go or it's yeah. just not possible to, yeah. to, to do that. But another yeah. thing that occurred to me as you were talking and I'll, we can leave it there because I know we're running over time, but is maybe a piece of evidence to support this interpretation that you're offering could be later in the text towards must be the end of book nine or the beginning of book 10 where, and I've written about this and you've read what I've written about this, where uh, they have Socrates offers to, I think Glaucon or whoever's talking at this point, the opportunity to defend poetry. Right. And to say, and look, if you nine. can make an argument in favor of poetry, we'll bring it right back in. Yeah. That to me is of a similar kind, except 
he was not explicit about the the city for pigs versus the luxurious city, probably because he realized he, he, they can't even comprehend a question like that. Yeah, they abandoned point. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, it, to me, that resonates as a similar sort of tapping and testing. Yeah, there's tapping and testing all all through the Republic, right? So, sure. you know, the beginning of the... So you're talking about his return to the censorship of the poets. Right, where he says only hymns to good people and or and songs for the gods or something or a lot like yeah he yeah. said you can't one of them early on book four maybe where it appears book three or four i can't remember where the censorship appears where he says something like well one thing we can't have poets do is is imitate you right. can't imitate another voice and you want to go hello <laughs> yeah. the republic <laughs> the republic yeah you're literally speaking in multiple characters voices yeah, including you're doing your it all teachers. the time what you, yeah. so that so the very the very text you're you're using right. to defend the censorship of the poets is not allowed in the city. Yes. Yeah. So he. So I think yes. You, so it's like you're saying, okay, we've gone on the on the long path. Have you guys learned anything now? Can you <laughs> right. defend poetry, right. which is can you, really just stories? Can you can do you at it? least recognize that you could potentially try to <laughs> to defend poetry? No. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah. Well, maybe maybe you renewed my interest now. Maybe I'm going to strike out and try to do this thing. Well, you definitely sparked my interest in thinking about what you just mentioned a little bit more. So whether that amounts to, you know, a book length uh, interrogation for you, it definitely, as I reread next time, I'll, I'll be keeping an eye out for the thoughts that we just raised. Good. Yeah. So uh, I, I have written the introduction to this book which is completely against my usual way of working. Right. But in it, I said, I want to get to the forms. The whole purpose of this is to get to the forms. And for some of you, it's going to be too fast. And for some of you, it's going to be too slow. <laughs> right. So I'm leaving out lots of things. Along the way, we'll stop and take in the view. You know, I want to talk about certain things along the way, but I'm, it's not going to be a, th a thorough exegesis of the Republic. I've got, right. I've got an ax to grind. Yeah, you keep... can't. And if you try to do that, you'd have to you you would die without having finished because you yeah. have to write 10,000 pages or whatever. Yeah. And you so barely a, get started. Yes. Yeah, 800 pages. or I don't know how long the Republic is. And I'd have to write to, twice that. Yeah. Right. And I have to include the text because the way I'm doing it is that this is the first time these students of Plato said ever heard this text. Yes. Yeah. And anyway. In a sense, yeah. OK, we're going to leave it at that. I guess I would just close by saying, in a sense, that very issue that you just identified is, I think, why one reason why writing using imagery and writing fiction is so philosophically powerful or compelling, because it can facilitate that process. You can you can condense complex ideas into eat more easily or readily digestible images. It, it's. I've come to learn that it's more powerful than that. So in doing the mystery essay, mm. <laughs> uh, I, which will be resolved on the 1st of November, by oh, the way. Exciting. Um, will we be able to talk about that on the podcast? Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll, yeah, I'll talk yeah. about it openly. I'll consider this to be a media event. Ah, exciting. The non-disclosure agreement says that I, I cannot, uh, I think it says something strong, like I cannot turn down media offerings. Wow. So this will be one. Um, <laughs> cool. But in it, uh, 
I looked at a lot of the psychological studies, the human brain is wired for stories. Yes. And it talks about how, how and why stories are powerful. And it's just what you were, were saying. It's uh, not that it's, well, it is, it is richer in its conveying of information and the, the images can really carry a lot of weight in, in, in fiction. Yeah. Uh, and it's also non-threatening in the sense that it's mm. not a, a philosophical nut that you're trying to crack. You're, right. you're on a story, a journey, you're rolling along. But the power is, and this is the thing that I discovered in writing this essay. And it doesn't matter if it's a happy story or a sad story. The reader cannot help but put himself or herself in the place of the person around whom the story is built. And their psychological and physiological reactions are just as if they are that person. Right. So you're having visceral responses, physiological responses to what you're reading as if you were in the story. You become that person. And this ties in with our whole notion of self. What does right. this do to the self that you're creating? <laughs> how, how does that impact the self that you think you are when you yourself is in this story that you had never heard before, never thought about before? Now you're in it. What does that do to you? Right. And it gives, anyway. you, gives you that momentary experience of relocating your consciousness, right? It's no longer just behind your eyes or whatever. It's in this yeah. other life, in this other space and yeah, time. in this other world. Yeah. That's awesome. And fascinating stuff that we will talk about more on the next encounter of the bullshit artists. So we'll assuming there. there is one. Yeah. Assuming we make it, <laughs> but uh, okay. See you people. Goodbye folks.
Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes. 